Welcome to Invited In. Today is an extra special episode because for the first time, I recorded Invited In from the field. Today's interview is straight from Samaritan Lodge, Alaska, where I sat down with Jay Warner Wallace. Many of you may know that name. He is a Christian apologist and author of Cold Case Christianity. He and his wife, Susie, are volunteering in housekeeping, leading devotions, and investing in each of the veterans and their spouses this week at Operation Healer Patriots. Thank you so much for yeah. joining me right now. Yeah, glad to do it. And it's funny, we're, up, we're outside, so you can hear all the outside noise of all the cars going by, which is just, I think it's a great snapshot of what this is like. This is an active runway right in front of us here, that, and we're kind of in quintessential Alaska, where half the vehicles here seem like they're planes, and there are planes that are taking off and landing right here in front of us. So it's kind of a cool experience, and, and we were just glad to be a part of what you're doing here. We know it's really important work, and I've been spent so many years in law enforcement that we felt like this has got a kinship mm-hmm. to, to veterans. We have a lot of veterans who work, serve in law enforcement after they leave the military, and this is all about wounded veterans who, for the most part, are probably amongst the can, can be amongst the most forgotten or the, the most um, probably needed of care. And we wanted to be part of that process. And who does that better than you guys? No one does it better than you guys. So we were glad to be part of this. Mm-hmm. So that, that leads into my question. How did you hear about Operation Healer Patriots, and how did you get involved? So years ago when we were pastoring, uh, I was youth pastoring and as a children's pastor first because my kids were young, and we became Christians later in life at 35. So the first t- time that we served was with children's ministry. And, you know, every children's ministry in the country probably is doing Operation Christmas Child, right? So so we started off hearing about Samaritan's Purse just, just from that experience. And then, of course, once you're plugged in, you're starting to receive the notifications and, and brochures. And, and magazines that help you to see what else is going on in the Samaritan Purse orbit. And we started here and, and watch what was happening with Operation Heal Our Patri- Patriots. And we just said, okay, we've got to find a way to get involved in this as a volunteer. Not, not to, I mean, to really truly just like everybody else, come out and just volunteer our time. And that was Susie last year said, hey, wh- how do we connect with them? And I said, well, I'll go on the website and submit a form. So it was before the reunion in Dallas, and we submitted a form and said, hey, can we just come out and serve tables? What do you need in terms of help? Now, I will tell you that a lot of folks do serve here because this is such a well-organized and such a dedicated group of servants that I wasn't even sure they'd have a need for us. But they wrote back and said, well, would you be a speaker in one of our breakout sessions? And so we did that the first year in Dallas and, and got to really get plugged in, and, and then we decided we, if we can, we're going to try to come back. And so here what we're doing is we're plugged into different service groups, uh, teams, you know, there's a maintenance team that I get a chance to hop in with and Susie's been like really in with the uh, housekeeping team so she's gone every day till four o'clock uh, serving in that team and and also we're doing some devotionals you know in the morning and, and we had a chance to speak at the church here which is just amazing this outdoor in the summer they use an outdoor uh, like a gymnasium with the stage uh, and the entire town seems like it turned out for that so it was very very impressive so we did that church service on Sunday and then you know our hope is just to connect with these vets and be of assistance any way we can. I first met you guys at the OHOP reunion. I was just so impressed. You guys were the first ones there, the last ones to leave at every session, you know, just getting engaging and getting to know the couples really well and your just Mm -hmm. genuine hearts for service have been just inspiring. So thank you. Well, for- and you know how, how important this is, right? We do all this stuff. And, and, and Franklin's got this amazing desire to have this experience be 
first class for all the people who attend. And so that requires a huge staff on the backside, right behind the stage, to really set the table to, to get all the living quarters. I mean, just the first day before they got here, we spent all that time mowing the yards and blowing the grass and, and trimming and pulling the weeds and just making sure that every detail looks fantastic. And, and you know, you know, you've heard how many times have you heard these vets say at the end of the week? That what really was powerful for them was the l- a level of detail, of care, of concern. It's people being ready for them to come off the plane. It's all the time they spent with all these servants who are there and asking, and they're all there clearly to serve the vets. So it is, it is as an apologist, it's, it's been like hard for me to kind of process this because, you know, apologists think arrogantly that apologetics matter and that, you know, we're going to reach people by making the case for Christianity. And of course we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this demonstrates the power of just loving on people. Uh, you know, it's a, kind of a combination of relationship and, and truth. But you, you have a hard time speaking truth to people with whom you have no relationship. Mm-hmm. So what Samaritan's Purse does is it, it I think it, it does an amazing job of building relationships. And then you can speak the hardest truths to people because you already are in relationship with them. So I think it's been a powerful week so far. Mm-hmm. You're good at describing where we are. So what would you say, just this place, how does it really quiet their hearts for the Lord um, and just the unique aspect of this lodge to bring someone for a retreat? You've seen many retreats happen, but what makes this place unique? Well, you know, when I was a youth pastor, I realized that the missions trips we could take, we could do service projects, but if we did them in our own town, here comes one of our planes we're talking about here. So as it flies by... That kind of sounds like an act of runway, doesn't it? It's so so cool. It's so cool. Well, that's part of the experience, though, because what I noticed doing youth pastor trips, uh, service trips, even if we went, let's say, to the inner city and we worked for a day, at the end of the day, you come home and you're back to your regular life. The trips that were most transformational for students were ones where we vacuum, kind of vacuum sucked the kids out of their everyday experience. And for seven days, they were someplace otherworldly mm-hmm. that was a challenge that offered something they couldn't, they had to sleep on the floor of a church and, and do this missions trip. And at the end of those kinds of trips, we saw huge transformation in young people. Mm-hmm. Samaritan's Purse does a similar kind of thing, right? You're not going to, these folks don't have any common daily experience that is close to what they're going to experience here in Alaska. And it's important that this be an otherworldly type of environment for them. Mm-hmm. Because then as they're experiencing renewal in their marriage, I think it's the fact they don't get to go back to their communities at the end of the day. They don't get to go back to their regular lives. They are completely isolated from those regular lives in this environment in which they are treated in a way that makes them receptive to what we're about to say to them. We've earned, we've kind of uh, earned the equity. We've invested in them enough to have some relational equity that then you can you can actually capitalize on, you can leverage for the gospel. And it's not manipulative in any way. It's just truly that the folks who serve here are like crazy over the top in love with the vets who come here. And you see that even in the community. You know, the community, I don't know if people realize this, but the, the community empties out at 5 p.m. on the Friday night when they fly in. And everyone is here from this community, not just the people who serve at Samaritan's Purse. And I, how many times, I was walking with a disabled vet yesterday taking a long hike he was amazing his ability to do it was amazing and what the first thing he said was I could not believe I got off the plane it's two things he said first of all all those people that were at the flags were there and then the first person I shook hands with coming off the plane was Franklin Graham Mm -hmm. and that stuck in his head right like like he didn't expect that and that is the power of what is happening here. And again, it's because this is an isolated experience. You're taking them out of their regular experience and you keep them here for five days and it is transformational. It's pretty powerful. 
So this podcast is called Invited In, connects the global family of Samaritan's Purse. Our goal is to unify the staff that is spread all over the world, uh, unify the families, help them to see the importance of this ministry and what their spouse does. So I would love for you to teach a devotion at the tail end, but first I would love to just hear, I know we know your story a little bit, but just personally, because you were a first responder, yeah. um, didn't know Christ, and then you came to know him. I just want to know how your, your leadership and your job changed once you found Christ and what your family dynamics look like mm. once you found him. Well, I'm, I'm, Susie always calls it like a mirror. You know, like as somebody who was a philosophical naturalist who was an atheist for all those years, and I was a pretty thoughtful person about why I was an atheist, mm-hmm. I rejected anything supernatural. I would have said that the historicity of Jesus is fine up until you include these miracle accounts because mm-hmm. that can't be true because miracles don't occur. Mm-hmm. And that was my position as somebody who trusted the sciences, the natural sciences, you know, space, time, matter, physics, chemistry. That's all that explains the universe. Uh, that was my position. I didn't allow for anything supernatural. Mm-hmm. So I was a kind of guy I see when I was in Dallas for example and we were you know I thought how am I going to do a presentation that's valuable in a marriage retreat mm-hmm. I don't speak on marriage typically I speak on the evidence for Christianity why it is true because I was a cold case detective and that's that we examined events in the distant past 35 years mm-hmm. and we use a lot of the same techniques and what I saw in Dallas was that 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 a lot of these guys will come and it appears they're coming because their wives are saying we need to go and their wives may be actually more committed believers than they are. And they've seen a bunch of stuff, and they've got questions about how any of this could be true given what they've seen, what they've experienced. Cops are the same way every day, every call. Nobody calls us to have a party. They call us to break up the party, mm-hmm. and, and you're, just, you're seeing junk every day. And, and you, at some point, you start wondering, how could there be a loving God who's all-powerful if he's not either powerful enough to stop this or doesn't care to stop it, he, then he can't be all-loving. So, so which is it? And, and that's something I think that, you know, that people struggle with. And I think the men in this ministry who come are probably has, asking those questions. They certainly were in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was glad to be able to contribute to that. But I think what happened for me is that I became... Um, I guess what I lost was my pro- I realized that I was not the top of the pyramid, top of the food chain, that, that suddenly that I was very, very much toward the bottom of the food chain. And that changed. I think that people who are unforgiving, some of the most unforgiving people I've ever known are people who think they have nothing to be forgiven for. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. So I was not a forgiving person. I wasn't a patient person, and I didn't really care sometimes about the job needs to be done, and if people needed to, you know, have to be you know, put in jail in order to do it, or, you know, I just did the job mm-hmm. uh, without caring much for the people we were putting in jail. And that changed. That definitely changed. What I did what changed the most is I started to realize that all these guys who do cold case murders, they did a, did a murder 30 years ago, well, they've been living for the last 30 years a very law-abiding life, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they have been doing... Uh, service work and they have been deacons at churches and they have been, I've arrested fire captains, I've arrested professors, I've arrested uh, every, you name it, and, and every aspect of society. They've never done another murder. They did one murder 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. What that tells me is I realized after becoming a Christian that that's me. I mean, I'm just as capable of that kind of evil. Mm-hmm. Every bit as capable of that kind of evil, but for the grace of God. And I think what happened after I became a Christian is I was able to say, okay, I've got a little more compassion for folks who do stupid things because I realize now how much I'm one of those folks who does stupid things. That's so true. It's only by the grace of God that we are saved. And part of your story and testimony is coming to understand the gospel through forensics, right? Tell me about how the Lord worked in your heart. So I became a Christian by examining the Gospels forensically, right? I use something called forensic statement analysis on the Gospels. That's how I became a Christian, and people thought that was the craziest thing they'd ever heard. But then as we 
were brand new Christians. We had little kids. They were, you know, seven and five, I think. Um, and so, sure enough, we used to we would put them in children's ministry, and they would say, "Hey, don't you know?" They didn't want. They'd never gone to church before, so they were like, "Hey, stay with us for a little bit." So we would stay in children's ministry. Well, before long, they're asking us to lead children's ministry. We didn't know anything. Okay. But we started, uh, you know, just following the curriculum and leading in, in children's ministry. And then I went to seminary, and then I was you know, their youth pastor. As they grew up, I just continued to pastor them. And then finally, when they were college age, I was uh, doing adult pastor as a lead pastor for six years. So, so during that process of kind of growing, um, I saw that young people, particularly young people, um, are departing the church in, in pretty good numbers in America. And, and and a lot of it is because they either were never part of the church to begin with or they had questions that just couldn't be resolved. So so as I began to share the process that I became a Christian, I saw that my students did better. Uh, so I started just really focusing on why you can, I, just kind of three legs, theology, um, what is true? Why, why do we believe as Christians these principles? Two, apologetics. Uh, you know, what is the evidence for these claims? And then three, behavior. How, how does your life change as a result of embracing these claims? You know, once, once God does something in your life, what does he tell us? How does he tell us to live? So those three things became the foundation of all my work with young people. And then I started writing books to kind of just chronicle that. And so that's, that's how all the apologetics books kind of came into being. It was really just because I was teaching high schoolers. Mm-hmm. And high schoolers are a tough crowd sometimes, mm-hmm. especially in Los Angeles County, mm-hmm. where they really, a lot of these kids, well, they'll go to church because their parents make them go. But the minute they get in college, they're out. And they've been out for years in their head. Mm-hmm. But now once they go to college, they have the freedom to be out physically. And so they just check out. And I saw enough of that in my own ministry that I wanted to change it. Mm-hmm. So that's why we started writing books and ultimately mm-hmm. wrote all the apologetics books based on our experience with high schoolers. Mm-hmm. And what did that look like within your family too? Because I know, and this is something we struggle with in the ministry, you know, you're, you're doing so much outside of the home. How do you incorporate that with your kids oh, in home? Yeah. And you mentioned serving with them. Yep. Yeah. What does that look like at home? Because, yeah, I don't want our kids to ever become hardened to the Lord because right. their, their dad or their mom is serving. So how did you keep that? Okay, so I had I was completely out of balance for a lot of years, right? Because you get saved and you always, wow, 35 years, mm-hmm. I didn't pay attention to God at all. Do I need to do- devote every waking moment to this effort now? And But, of course, you know, God never calls you to love your ministry or your books or your chances to serve the way that Christ loves the church. That that command is for your spouse. That command is for your, your wife. And and so it took me a lot of years of, of really, because, you know, I was working... 50 hours a week as a detective, and then you get a call out, someone's murdered, and you're working an extra 20 hours that week working a murder, and and then I was serving 20 hours a week as a youth pastor for a lot of that, and then I was in seminary taking one class at a time and finished that in seven years. So there was like no margin, and, and that was really not fair to... And I think a lot of us do that, right? Where we have a sense that, and, and so I, I, at least now at this point, I'm 58, uh, in my 50s, I've kind of recaptured the, the perspective, the, the percentage perspective, right? That I'm able to say, okay, look, nothing is more important. And I knew this before because my parents divorced early, mm-hmm. that nothing's more important to me than marriage. Before I was a believer, the thing that was my highest value was not God, it was marriage. Mm-hmm. So when I met Susie, even though I was not a believer, the highest value was marriage. I still, to this day, will always say I love marriage more than I love Susie. But she benefits from that because I want the kind of crazy marriage that, that means I have to love her in a certain way to have that kind of marriage. But what drives me is the love of marriage. Well, I've kind of, we've, we've had to kind of remind ourselves of that over the years as other things 
press against us, right? Because we're serving here together. If it was about, well, can you come up and serve without her? I would have said no. I, honestly, I would have because I, my goal here now is to be able to tell Susie, I will see you the day after tomorrow. Mm -hmm. If I can't tell her, I will see you the day after tomorrow, she has to come with me. Mm -hmm. So if she says, you know, I don't really want to go on that trip, I'm not that interested in that trip, you know, a speaking engagement someplace across mm -hmm. the world, then I just don't take those events. Mm -hmm. So I, for, for the most part, I do stateside events mm -hmm. that I can get me back home to her within three, you know, the third day. By the third day, I have to be home. So that's been, so that has limits. It's going to limit what you can do, but it also, I think, keeps in balance. That's why when I saw what you were doing here with marriages, uh, look, you, I, I'm an apologist, but I will tell you that apologetics is not going to change the church, and it's not going to change the culture nearly as fast as the restoration of marriages. Mm -hmm. So, so we have to really kind of focus on the, this thing is my first priority. My first love is the, my love of my marriage. The thing I'm most proud of is the 40 years I've been with Susie. Those are the things that I'm most proud of. So this is what Samaritan's Purse is doing here in this setting is it's helping um, officers and helping enlisted and helping vets who are now no longer um, – they're no longer serving – understand that value, or that this is the highest value they can hold. And I always talk about young people, this is a trajectory decision. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you made a trip to the moon from the earth and you got within a mile of, of the moon, you can make a two degree error, you'll still land on the moon. But if you make that two degree error on the, the surface of, the, of earth, you will miss the moon by thousands of miles. So it turns out some decisions are like that. They're, I call these trajectory decisions. You have to make them early and be dedicated to them early. Because if you don't, you'll miss your target by thousands of miles. And I think young people, and I serve at Summit Worldview Ministry in Colorado with just high schoolers, you know, 180 high schoolers seven times a year for two week immersions. And I will tell you that I think young people think that the most important trajectory decisions they're gonna have to make are about education mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and training and, and career. They don't see marriage spouse as the most important trajectory decision you will make between the ages of 19 and 25. It is. Because you can make all the other decisions right, but make the wrong spouse choice and train wreck this whole thing. Or you can make the right spouse choice and make all kinds of bad choices on the career side and still have a glorious life. So I think this is what I'm trying to help young people too, to see that this is a really important decision to make. Thank you so much for allowing us to get to know you a little bit better. Before we wrap up, I would love for you to encourage our staff around the world in the same way that you are encouraging everyone here at Operation Heal Our Patriots. Can you share a little bit from one of your devotions? I'll just give you a summary of what we're doing all week long. So okay. we're talking about why would we trust, why should these vets trust that what's written in the Bible is true? We're going to teach them principles about marriage from the New Testament. But I think a lot of, of, of our vets are like, well, this may work, but it's just, is that why it's true? Because it works? Or it does it work because it's true? So I want our, everyone to be able to know this is actually a true claim about an historical event called the resurrection that changed everything. So what we're talking about are what are the four aspects of eyewitness reliability in criminal trials that I work all the time. They are, were they early? Were, were, they, were they really there? Was the witness really present to see what they said they saw? Because if, they, if I can show they weren't even in town that night, they can't be an eyewitness. Two, can they be verified in some way? Three, have they ever changed their story over time? Four, do they possess a bias? 
bias that would cause them to lie because they're driven by their bias. So it turns out those four areas we assess, the Gospels pass with flying colors in ways that other religious texts don't pass. The Quran can't pass this test. The Book of Mormon can't pass this test. But it turns out the, the scriptures, we can demonstrate yesterday how early those documents come into being. They are written early enough to have been written in the presence of eyewitnesses and by eyewitnesses. That doesn't make them true on its own. So we made that case yesterday for how you can early date the Gospels. Two, can they be corroborated in some way? Today we just talked about how non-Christians in the first century corroborated details that the Christian authors offered, even though those non-Christians did not believe Christianity was true. Third thing we're going to talk about tomorrow is has the text changed over time? And you can actually trace the content of the Gospels through the the students of the eyewitnesses, John's got three uh, students, Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, and Papias. They talk about what he taught them. Then they've got a student named Irenaeus. He talks about what they taught him. He's got a student named Hippolytus. And foot step after step after step, you can trace the content of the Gospels over the centuries to see if the story ever changes. It never does. And finally, do they possess a bias? And I'll tell you, there's only three reasons why anyone tells a lie, only three reasons why anyone commits a murder or any sin you've ever committed. It was always just for financial greed, sexual lust, or the pursuit of power. Those are the things that cause us to do things we shouldn't do. Tell me where, what area in those three motives for lying would the disciples possess? Are they trying to get rich or girlfriends or power? What is it they're trying to do with this lie? And once you see those things are absent, then you can start to have better trust that they aren't driven by a bad motive. They aren't driven by bias. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about those over the course of this week, but I just want the staff to at least know enough, because what I discovered is, is if you really know this is true evidentially, not just, I hope it's true, not just, mm -hmm. I, I had an experience that demonstrated it's true, because Mormons can tell you that, mm -hmm. but I actually know it's true evidentially in a way that can be demonstrated objectively even to a stranger. Mm -hmm. If you know it's true like that, then you are not going to be shaken if you have a bad week. And you're not going to run from something. This is why Peter said, where else can we go? Well, why was he so sure there was no place else to go? Because he had seen those miracles firsthand. He had great evidence that this was true. Mm -hmm. So he found himself with no other alternative. Well, I feel the same way. I've got great evidence that this is true. I don't have any other alternatives. So on a bad day, well, where else am I going to go? This is this is it, you, you know. And I, I think for especially for our vets, they they've had a bad series of years. If they had known that this was evidentially true, then they just got to figure out, well, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Not there is no God because He would never have allowed this to happen to me. Those are two different ways to approach the problems, and we just want to give our vets a reason to say, hey, this is actually true. So therefore, all that's left to ask is, why would God allow it? Not does God exist at all? Mm -hmm. And so we want that kind of certainty, even on our staff. So that's what we've been trying to do this week. Thank you so much. I love what you preached at church this Sunday about Nicodemus and the difference between knowing about God and believing in God. For us, um, I know as a Christian organization, um, we can hear so much about God. I went to a Liberty University, which is a Christian school, and there were times when I took it for granted and I didn't study the Word for myself. And I love the example that you gave of, of muscle memory and continuing to dig into the scripture each day so that you could rely on it when you needed it. You know, Samaritan Sparse is an evangelical organization. We serve in Jesus' name, and we go to the ditches to share the gospel, to be able to meet a need and then to share Jesus with them. Our staff is used to sharing Jesus, but we also need to know why we believe in him and know the scripture for ourselves. 
I loved your encouragement of memorizing scripture and hiding God's word in our hearts. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. I have personally been so encouraged by working with you and your wife, Susie. Your heart to serve these veterans and their spouses is an encouragement, and it is an honor to serve here with you. To everyone listening, I hope you feel both encouraged and challenged this week by the wisdom of Jay Warner Wallace. Don't forget to click subscribe so we can continue to connect the Samaritan's Purse family around the world.